Last time we spoke about the Japanese landings at Buna and Gona, Lieutenant General Kiyokutake had his work cut out for him as he was tasked with securing a beachhead and finding a traversable path to Kokoda. What he found right away was the Papuan Infantry Battalion, fighting them bitterly every step of the way. As news made its way across the Kokoda track to Port Moresby and then to Australia, the Allied commanders soon realized they had to get men on New Guinea as fast as possible to thwart the Japanese from getting across the merciless overland route to Port Moresby. Alongside the war for New Guinea, we also briefly talked about the British invasion of Vichy-controlled French Madagascar. The British made quick work of Les Traites, but the Japanese were able to use midget submarines to severely damage the HMS Ramillies. Now we will continue the story for the war over New Guinea. This episode is the Battle of Kokuda. Welcome to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www patreon.com slash kings and generals and hey if after all that you are still hungry for some more history content why don't you check out my personal channel the pacific war channel over at youtube where you find a few episodes going as far back as the opium wars of the 1800s all the way up to the end of the pacific war in 1945 give it a look it'll mean a lot to me for the last couple of weeks we've been talking a lot about the american and japanese war plans for the pacific theater in particular we have been discussing in depth the plans for New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. Now, the U.S. Army and Navy began to butt heads. Well, specifically, General Douglas MacArthur and Admiral Ernest King. Eventually, cooler heads, such as George Marshall, intervened to create a compromise. And here is what they came up with. The official plan for seizing and occupying New Britain, New Ireland, and the New Guinea area. Point A. Task 1. Seizure and occupation of the Santa Cruz Islands, Tulagi and adjacent positions, that is all the parts of the Solomons. Task 2. Seizure and occupation of the remainder of the Solomon Islands and of Lei Salamawa and the northeast coast of New Guinea. Task 3. Seizure and occupation of Rubal and adjacent positions in New Guinea, New Ireland area. The orders were distributed on July the 2nd, Task 1 and the seizure and occupation of the Santa Cruz Islands to lag in adjacent positions would remain under the command and authority of Admiral Nimitz and his sub-theater commander, Admiral Gormley. Tasks 2 and 3 involving the capture of Japanese airfields on the northeast coast of New Guinea, followed by the seizure and occupation of Rabaul, while well, that one would be General MacArthur's show. In order to keep Task 1 entirely within Gormley's domain, the line borders of the South Pacific and the Southwest Pacific areas were literally moved a single degree westward to the latitude of 159 east. 
skirting the western end of Guadalcanal. So for the Americans, they were able to work out how they would be tackling the operations at a macro level. Now for the Japanese, Operation FS, aka the seizure of New Caledonia, Fiji, and Samoa, was ultimately cancelled as a result of the failures at the battles of Coral Sea and Midway. This led the Japanese to focus their efforts on finding an overland route to hit Port Moresby. The last time we left off, the Japanese had landed at Buna and Gona, and they were advancing towards the Kokoda Track. Captain Templeton was caught by the Japanese, trying to warn his comrades that they were about to be surrounded at Oivi, and he paid for this with his life. The Japanese troops attacking Oivi were the first company of the 144th Regiment, led by 1st Lieutenant Yukio Ogawa. His men were seasoned jungle fighters who had participated in the invasions of Guam, Rabaul, and New Britain. One Australian officer who had faced these very same men in New Britain recalled this. Their movement in the bush had to be seen to be believed, because they just vanish. Their field craft and movement was magnificent. At nightfall on the 26th of July, the Australian officers held a conference where they determined the enemy had nearly surrounded their position at Oivi. They needed to find a way out of the village, and very quickly. They expected to be assaulted at daybreak, from multiple directions. Word began to spread amongst the defenders. Lance Corporal Sanopa of the Royal Papuan Constabulary Force was on a temporary assignment with the PIB, and he offered to escort them to safety by ways of a little unused trail that he was sure the Japanese were unaware of. At 10pm, the Australian and Papuans began to slip away from the Japanese encirclement. It was a dangerous trek through a nearby creek in the pitch darkness of night. Each man held on to the man in front of him. By the break of dawn, they had reached the safety of a path just due south of Kokoda. When they began to eat their rations and take a break, they heard explosions and gunfire in the distance. It was the Japanese attacking the empty village of Oivi. Lieutenant Colonel William Owen received word that the Japanese had encircled Oivi and that his men were trying desperately to escape. He figured the 50 or so men he had at Kokoda could not survive a Japanese attack if it came there. Owen had secretly observed the slaughter of more than 130 prisoners by the Japanese back at the Toll Plantation on New Britain, and he was understandably concerned for the fate of his men if they were to fall into the hands of the Japanese. Thus Owen ordered his men to bury a bunch of extra supplies that they would not be able to carry and he led them five miles southwest to Deniki, where they met up with Major Watson's platoon, which was on its way to Oivi. Deniki was on the main track to Port Moresby, meaning all the Allied reinforcements would have to pass through Deniki. While the groups mingled for a night, Owen received some shocking news. A scouting party reported that the Japanese had not even occupied Kokoda yet. Owen knew the only way he would be able to receive reinforcements quickly was via air transport. So, if the enemy was not going to occupy Kokoda, well, he damn well was. Shortly after 10am on July the 28th, the Australians and Papuans returned downhill to reoccupy the Kokoda airstrip area. 
By 11.30, they had performed a reconnaissance of the surrounding area to be sure the Japanese were not setting up some sort of ambush. Then Owen radioed Port Moresby, stating this. Reoccupied Kokuda. Fly-in reinforcements, including two platoons and four detachments of motors. Airdrome opened. Owen expected the enemy to be coming down the track from Oivi. Any day now so he positioned his men in a horseshoe formation around the edge of a plateau facing north. When the Japanese did come, they would be facing an uphill fight, and with some luck, the defenders might be able to hold their position for an entire day. The Japanese led by Lieutenant Ogawa, meanwhile were halted at Oivi, awaiting their own reinforcements that were strung along the track all the way from Buna. Hundreds of Japanese soldiers had brought bicycles, a staple of the IGA since the China War and the fighting in Malaya. But the muddy trails of New Guinea proved too much for the little bicycles, and countless were abandoned all over the jungle. When Lieutenant Ogawa arrived at Kokoda, he quickly saw the Allied positions they had taken up, and he formed his men in a reverse horseshoe formation, enabling them to attack from the front and sides. He also made the classic move to send a small party to circle around the enemy. During the 28th, two U.S. Army transports circled the Kokoda airfield carrying 30 Australian troops. Captain Bidstrup aboard recalled, The Yanks wouldn't put us down because they reckoned there were Japs everywhere. I could see our own troops on the ground at Kokoda, and I asked them, those American pilots, to hang around. Those people were clearing the barricades on the strip. No, they wouldn't. They went back. After nightfall, the Japanese began motoring the Allied horseshoe formation. This went on throughout the entire night, and then at 2.30 a.m. on the 29th, Lieutenant Ogawa sent 200 men to charge up the incline at the defender's plateau. Moonlight occasionally showed the enemy charging, coupled with their shouting, and it left the defenders spooked. The firefight lasted more than an hour as the defenders' machine guns and grenades cut down the enemy, trying to claw their way up the hill. Although they were clearly at a disadvantage because, well, the Allies had the high ground, so much like the poor Anakin Skywalker, the Japanese were having a bad go at it. Anyways, the Japanese persisted while taking heavy casualties and one of those said casualties was Lieutenant Ogawa. Lieutenant Owen was trying to throw a grenade when he was shot. A young platoon leader named Lieutenant A.G. Garland approached Owen and said this, Sir, I think you're taking an unnecessary risk walking around amongst the troops like this. To which Owen replied, Well, I've got to do it. Owen was the kind of soldier that believed in leading from the front. A doctor tended to Owen, finding a bullet that had struck him just above the right eyebrow, penetrating his skull and his brain. The doctor, named Captain Joffrey Vernon, knew that such a severe wound meant that Owen only had minutes to live. As Owen lost consciousness, Vernon made him as comfortable as he possibly could. The Japanese did not stop their push up the plateau, however, Motors and rifle fire rained upon the defenders' horseshoe formation. As the Japanese closed in on the defensive lines, the fighting degenerated into hand-to-hand -hand combat. 
Major Watson saw the Japanese in a full charge and ordered everyone to withdraw to Daniki. Captain Vernon was tending to Owen as they withdrew, and he described the scene in his diary as such. The mist had grown very dense, but the moonlight allowed me to see where I was going. Thick white streams of vapor stole between the rubber trees and changed the whole scene into a weird combination of light and shadow. The mist was greatly to our advantage. Our own line of retreat remained perfectly plain, but it must have slowed down the enemy's advance considerably. Another chance, factor that helped save the Kokoda force. The first battle of Kokoda cost the Allies seven dead, including Owen and five wounded. The Japanese would claim to have 20 casualties, including Lieutenant Ogawa. For reasons of their own, both sides were lying in their reports about the clash. Despite losing seven men, including Owen, retreating to Daniki, missing Templeton, Kokoda, being taken, during all of this, requesting for bombing raids on both the Kokoda airfield and the track between them and Oivi, the Allied communique failed to mention the loss of the Kokoda airfield. The report simply stated, Kokoda, Allied, and enemy forward elements engaged in skirmishes in the area. The Japanese report claimed the retreating Australians had, quote, left 40 dead when they fled Kokoda. A secondary Japanese report also claimed, In Kokoda area, our advance force has been engaged in a battle with 1,200 Australians and has suffered unexpectedly heavy casualties. So both sides were basically lying to their commanders. For the next week, aside from small skirmishes, it was relatively quiet. Both sides rested their troops, and they were busy moving all the supplies and reinforcements. Bombing attacks kept the Kokoda airfield out of service for the Japanese victors, which they needed to quickly move their supplies, especially food. The sluggish logistics of moving supplies along the trail resulted in a lack of food, and the meals were reduced to two a day for the Japanese. One Allied bomber made the situation much worse when it had hit a hut filled with their potato rations. On the same day the US bomber blew up the potato hut, a Japanese patrol had its first encounter with an American weapon recently issued to some of the troops arriving at Daniki from Port Moresby. That weapon was the Thompson submachine gun. Any Call of Duty World at War fans here? Nine Japanese would die during that confrontation, and five days later, another eight were killed, with five wounded. Total Australian casualties were a single man wounded. The Thompson submachine gun became widely popular with the men who got their hands on them. Raymond Paul, an Australian war correspondent and historian, wrote this about the weapon. It was called an American's gangster gun by some of the senior officers and it encouraged them, the young Australian soldiers with limited combat experience, to adopt aggressive tactics against the enemy. The one drawback of the Thompson submachine gun was its incompatibility with a jungle environment. It required constant cleaning to avoid jamming. Later on in 1942, the Australian-made Owen gun would supersede it. 
The Owen gun was a similar weapon invented by a 24-year-old named Evelyn Owen from Wollongong, New South Wales in 1939. It could better withstand the mud and humidity of the New Guinea jungle and was soon favored by Australian and Americans alike. Australian soldiers named it the Digger's Darling, a digger being a slang military term used by the Australians and New Zealanders to describe soldiers who had seen combat. The Owen gun would continue to be used by Australia through the Vietnam War. Meanwhile, Colonel Yokoyama was pleased with the progress his vanguard force had made. Yokoyama's men had been able to repair many of the roads and built up many bridges making motor transportation possible for about 60 kilometers from the coast of Sombo. Yet, the roads west of Sombo proved to be suitable for just pack horses. So he ordered the men to stockpile Sombo with supplies. On the Kokoda Trail, the Japanese captured a large amount of grenades, machine guns, and ammunition left behind by the Allied defenders. As for the Australians under Watson, they received three companies of reinforcements alongside some very much needed supplies. Now, we need to go back to a theater of the war we haven't spoke about in quite some time. Burma. The last time we spoke about Burma, the 15th Army of General Aida, alongside their Thai allies, had utterly defeated the Allies, forcing them to flee for their lives. The British forces ran for India, while the majority of the Chinese ran for Yunnan. But some of their units, the Chinese Expeditionary Force, led by Stilwell, ended up going to India, much to Chiang Kai-shek's horror. When Stilwell arrived in New Delhi on May the 24th, he immediately began to make plans for a renewed offensive to retake Burma. He made an official statement the very next day. I claim we got a hell of a beating. We got run out of Burma, and it is as humiliating as hell. I think we ought to find out what caused it, go back, and retake it. Stilwell then wrote a letter to his wife, where he placed the blame squarely on Chiang Kai-shek. I'll be going back to report to the GMO, and I sure have an earful for him. He's going to hear stuff he never heard before, and it's going to be interesting to see how he takes it. Well, Chiang Kai-shek had already determined that he must from now on sign off on Stilwell's orders, although he did not tell Stilwell this. Chiang Kai-shek wrote in his diary, Now I know that the alliance is just empty words, and I don't exclude America from this. Most of the 38th Division, led by General Sun Yian, made it to India, and the political and financial consequences of Stilwell's actions would rebound on Chiang Kai-shek's government for years to come. The ending of the Burma Road supply route also put another opportunity into Stilwell's hands. Some 45,000 tons of Lend-Lease supplies intended for China were now instead assigned to the Chinese forces that had found themselves in India. Stilwell would retain control over the Lend-Lease assigned to China, fully capable of diverting much of its projects when he favored so. And of course, this would only piss off Chiang Kai-shek evermore.
Stilwell began planning the training and re-equipping of his Chinese divisions in India, and he asked General Marshall for the arrival of an American division to aid him in his offensive, aimed at retaking Burma and driving the Japanese out of Thailand. He also sent a proposal to Chiang Kai-shek for a reform. Stilwell believed that the Chinese army was weak because it was too big to be sufficiently equipped. So he in turn proposed the merging of divisions to bring all units up to full strength. This would require purging high-ranking Chinese officers who had failed Stilwell during the Burma Road campaign debacle. Stilwell was met with opposition and no shit. General Marshall told him that the American forces were stretched too thin as it was, and their priority was for the British to reopen the Burma Road, and that the Chinese couldn't realistically undertake such reforms. The Americans were gravely concerned with the situation of Chongqing. They feared without the steady lend-lease supplies, the doom of Chongqing was truly at hand. The American advisor on the Far Eastern political affairs, Stanley Hornbeck, was very, very concerned. He believed the Chinese were receiving no reassurances anywhere. Things were going badly for the Allies, and although the American government had promised to send goods to China, these goods were simply not arriving. How long would the Chinese be able to accept this situation, he wondered. Thus, he sent word to Washington, from now on, there is only one way by which we can make sure of maintaining China's confidence. We must deliver goods. President FDR and most of the State Department shared this very concern, but it was simply impossible to get enough materials to China. To add insult to injury, in June, part of the 10th Air Force in India, which had been promised to go to Chiang Kai-shek, was whisked off to the Middle East. Stilwell wrote while in Chongqing, Bang! Brereton to go to Egypt with all the heavy bombers and all the transports he needs. Bang! The A-29s are to be held at Khartoum and diverted to the British. Now what am I going to say to the GMO? Well, it turns out Chiang Kai-shek heard the news before Stilwell, and he had plenty to say about the matter. Chiang Kai-shek sent a letter to FDR titled The Three Minimum Demands Three U.S. divisions must be sent to India for him with 500 combat planes and there must be a guarantee of 5,000 tons a month flown in over the hump or the ferry. As the flyers called the mountain range, they had to cross between Burma and and Kunming. When Stilwell read all this, he exclaimed, All by the end of August? Utterly impossible. It was pretty much impossible. At the time, all available aircraft, such as those of the American Air Force, as well as commercial Sino-American lines like the CNAC, had managed to bring just a measly fraction of the materials needed. Basically, on average, 100 tons per month. 
Chiang Kai-shek's advisors had acquired a delusional faith in aircraft possibilities because of Chenault, who kept making claims that the war could be fought cheaper with better results if only everyone concentrated on air power. Chiang Kai-shek followed up on this ultimatum with what's still well referred to as veiled threats. He said if they were not met, he would have to make other arrangements. He said it in this way. China cannot go on without help. The pro-Japanese activity is quite strong. To make the situation even better, Chiang Kai-shek had basically decided Stilwell was a bona fide villain who stood between Chongqing and Washington, and thus Chongqing suffered at his hands. Now FDR sent Lachlan Curry to investigate what was going on in China, and Curry began to do this by talking to Chiang Kai-shek in much length. This seemed to have a real positive effect on Chiang Kai-shek. He even began to be cordial with Stilwell again. Before leaving China, Curry was invited to a social occasion, a quiet dinner with Chiang Kai-shek's family, and, well, Stilwell was invited. So things were looking kind of good. When Curry got back to Washington, his report was that the alliance between China and America was in grave danger. Something had to be done about the supply of materials that was promised but not delivered. On top of this, he recommended canning Stilwell. Now, because of the smoothing over efforts of Curry, Chiang Kai-shek was much more ready to consider the new Burma campaign, so he modified his three demands. Number one, to establish a base from which to start a counteroffensive against Japan. Number two, to prevent Germany, Italy, and Japan from joining forces in the Middle East. Number three, to open a line of communications from India to China so that large quantities of supplies could be brought back into China, thereby enabling the Chinese to complete their plan for a general offensive at an early date. Number four, to keep the Japanese too busily occupied to seize the initiative anywhere else in the Pacific. Now, these modifications were very well received in Washington. The British, not so much. The British felt the four points did not warrant immediate attention, and they accused Stilwell of placing too much attention to the Burma theater. Now, during all of this time, there was another key player in the mix, Kind of like a throuple relationship between Chiang Kai-shek, Stilwell, and Chenault. Chenault had gradually convinced the Chinese commanders that the answer to all of their troubles, while waiting for something to happen elsewhere, was to step up a supply line by air over the hump. He made vast claims of what could be supplied via such means, and Chiang Kai-shek became quite convinced. This led Chiang Kai-shek to begin demanding the American Air Force in China be made independent under Chenault. This idea, mind you, had been requested by, well, Chenault, a year before. But now, it would be granted. Chiang Kai-shek then upped his earlier request of 5,000 tons to be supplied by air over the hump to 10,000 tons a month. He also demanded 500 combat planes before November of 1943. The Western generals pleaded with Chiang Kai-shek, 
that they were simply incapable of this. In truth, Washington was dealing with a lot. The China theater was just one of many. Stalin had been clamoring for a second front in Europe, complaining bitterly about the lack of the Allied war effort against the Germans. Britain was constantly arguing about the allocation of war materials. They wanted more action in Africa. Marshall, who championed Stilwell, was trying to help build up China's air defense. The major problem was, to have airfields in China required a ground army that could defend them, something China was certainly lacking. Stilwell kept screaming that Peanut, his nickname for Chiang Kai-shek, was hoarding all of his best troops in the Northwest to use against the communists, which was absolutely true. Chenault argued that with a good China-based air force, the Japanese would never be able to close in on Chongqing. FDR took all of this simultaneously and he, you know, tried to do the best to please everyone. It's a very difficult situation. The fact of the matter was, the hump was not going to be able to get enough supplies to China. They simply had to retake Rangoon and the Burma Road. On July the 19th, Stilwell submitted to Chiang Kai-shek a plan calling for a British-Chinese cooperation in Burma, something that would force the hand of both Washington and the Generalissimo in regards to the Lend-Lease problem. This was a huge step in seeking compromise and reconciliation with Chiang and the Chinese. On July the 29th, Stilwell would broaden his plans for a Burma offensive into a whole Pacific front. Stilwell's Pacific Front plan called for the retaking of Burma by 12 divisions from Yunnan and one American and three British divisions with two divisions of the Chinese army in India driving from Manipur. These allied forces would converge above Mandalay, then fan out across South Burma, Thailand, to the coast of Indochina and eventually Hong Kong. Chiang Kai-shek liked the plan and he would approve of it on August the 1st sending it to Dr. Curry to present it to Washington. Chiang Kai-shek would also modify his three demands, again stating 500 planes at 5,000 tons a month was acceptable without specifying a deadline for its fulfillment. Then much later on, in September the 8th, Stilwell would address the matter of the China Theater's air war with the formulation of the China Air War Plan. This proposed the defense of the airlines and of Chongqing to be done via an offensive operation against hostile air concentrations using Chenault's task force. They would protect the ferry line over the hump, Chongqing and the Yangtze Valley. Perhaps, just perhaps, there was a looming hope for China after all. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some more Pacific War content, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube where you can find content going as far back as the Opium Wars of the 1800s all the way to the end of the Pacific War in 1945. Check it out, it means a lot to me. Alright, so we got some heated action occurring on the Kokoda track, leaving the Allies and the Japanese scrambling to get men into the area faster in order to win the war over Port Moresby. 
We also got a bit more from my favorite sitcom, The Vinegar Joe and Peanut Show. But in the end, cooler heads managed to ease the tension, and it seems China might very well get back into the fight in Burma.